Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines, where I'm coming to you from my quarantine to yours. I'm here today with Dr. Tom Ginsberg, Professor of International Law and Political Science at the University of Chicago Law School. Tom focuses on international law from an interdisciplinary perspective. And for those of you who know me well, I think of that as a critically valuable perspective in the larger discourse around some of our more pressing problems. Most recently, Tom published an article in the Society's very own American Journal of International Law called Authoritarian International Law. Tom, welcome. I hope this finds you safe and well in these extraordinary times. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. So, Tom, I think I want to get right into your most recent piece, which is obviously um, something I think that it's attracted a lot of attention. And as if our listeners needed any more darkness, your article in some ways stands as a harbinger of perhaps even darker times to come. And I think to start, your article asks a highly pertinent question for the current state of the world, and that is, what would international law look like in an increasingly authoritarian world? And that begs the deeper question, perhaps, of whether we, as a society, need to contemplate the possibility of what you call authoritarian international law, which, to use your words, is designed to extend authoritarian rule across time and space. So obviously that's sobering to say the least, but I want to start with kind of the basics, Tom. What, and from your perspective, what do you mean when you say authoritarian international law? Right. Well, you know, those of you who've studied uh, international law, you know, know that our classic position is that international law is neutral as between regime types. There's no requirement that the government be democratic or authoritarian. We have a plurality of kinds of systems, and international law classically defined is supposed to facilitate interaction across countries, regardless of their regime type. Now, um, of course, in the 1990s, we began to see a push, I think, for a bit more what I was calling pro-democratic international law, where we were using international legal institutions to promote those things which really are at the core of democracy, free and competitive elections, free speech, freedom of association, uh, the rule of law in electoral administration. Um, and so that's, you know, one poll, I suppose. And what I'm suggesting is that we are now seeing it's uh, direct opposite. That is international law that is designed to undermine those things systematically, and I call that the authoritarian international law. And so let's dig into that a little bit more. Um, you talk about and you make the point that uh, less than half the world's current population is now living in nations are, that are fully or even flawed democracies, fully authoritarian or even flawed democracies. And I think that is part of the perspective that you just went through to posit that there's a strong possibility that the 21st century will be no more as an authoritarian century than a democratic one. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how you think we got here. And I know that you're one of the, the most interesting lines of thought in your article is, is you posit that perhaps the groups that benefited from the liberal international legal order were not as widespread as proponents of liberalism wish them to be. So I want to ask you, how did we get here? Do you think that the liberal legal order went wrong? 
And if so, how? Great. Well, there's sort of two views on that. And uh, this is really a big debate within international relations theory. You have the realist tradition, which says, you know, countries are just going to act in their own interest. Doesn't matter if they're democracies or dictatorships. Uh, and people like my colleague, John Mearsheimer here at University of Chicago are really critical of liberal states uh, because he says that there's a kind of tendency among liberal states and thus the liberal order to be ever expansive uh, in its efforts to bring more states into the democratic fold. And of course, that naturally is going to lead to conflict with non-democratic states. So that's sort of one point of view. Uh, and from that point of view, you could sort of trace a story where a liberalism overreached, right? That it, uh, it uh, had a view that there would be um, uh, ever expanding set of democratic countries, that free markets would bring political freedom, and, you know, we'd end up in one big, happy, liberal universe. Um, and, you know, a particular, I think, moment from that point of view would be the Iraq War, right, trying to impose democracy by force, leading, of course, to defensive reaction. Now, there's another line of thought which says, um, look, you know, liberal states do cooperate among themselves, and that's just the nature of them. They they are more integrated with each other and, uh, you know, use international law more. One of the things my article shows is that liberal and democratic states have been very active in the creation of international law. They sign more treaties. They use international adjudication more frequently. They participate in bureaucratic conferences where international legal rules are formed. They're just really active. Um, and uh, from and, you know, that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there would have to be a conflict um, with illiberal states. And from that point of view, I think it just has a very different kind of uh, set of normative implications, I suppose. So uh, that realist point of view is one perspective, which says, look, liberals overreached. Uh, there's another point of view, which says, you know, liberals didn't necessarily overreach, but there was a sort of parts of the liberal order, which were self-undermining. And in particular, you know, we talk about a global liberal order as if it's one thing. Uh, but one point of view says, no, you know, there was obviously good to be pushing for more human rights, for more political participation, but to tether that to uh, very open markets meant that there were going to be a lot of people left behind. And this was laying the groundwork for the populist backlash we've seen in many countries. Uh, among national publics who feel like globalization hasn't benefited everybody. So from that point of view, the mistake was not general liberal overreach, but free markets, uh, the extension of neoliberalism, if you will. And I suppose you could have a third point of view, which says, you know, liberalism didn't overreach at all. It was just a matter of, um, you know, defensive reaction by authoritarian regimes, um, sort of an inevitable pushing back and, um, you know, that it's not anything we did, it's who we are, if you will, that has led to this kind of current state of conflict. And so, Tom, of those three that you've laid out, which one do you subscribe to? You know, I, it's, my mood changes at various times. Um, <laughs> I do think, obviously, you know, we can look back and say uh, mistakes were made, as it were, and I course, consistently thought that the, the Iraq war was a civilizational error. Um, uh, but I think when we look at the rising uh, tide of authoritarianism, I'm not sure that's the key juncture. 
the key juncture really seems to be a series of uh, beginning of color revolutions of the late 2000 aughts uh, in Kyrgyzstan, in uh, Ukraine, in Georgia. Uh, these were, you know, things which were happening sort of spontaneously. It wasn't that these were necessarily promoted actively by the West, but they were just the logical extension of the expansion of liberal freedoms. But that obviously made uh, Russia extremely defensive. Uh, China mm -hmm. certainly has been very defensive about any suggestion of uh, anything that would lead to political liberalization locally. The Arab Spring obviously also provoked uh, a sense among authoritarians that, wow, this is really dangerous, that there, there may be indeed be a global set of demands for human freedom, and that's not going to really work for our particular uh, national projects. And so I guess part of the story I'm trying to tell is that those authoritarians then seeing this decided that despite their very, very different interests, right, authoritarian regimes are totally diverse set, ranging from, you know, communist China to theocratic Iran to, you know, Bolivari and Venezuela. But despite those ideological differences, they, I think, are deciding that cooperation is worthwhile because they do have common interests in combating the extension of the liberal order. So that's kind of where I think we are and how we got here. And I think that leads to where we're going, right? And you, you yourself do an excellent job in your, in your article of documenting or, or showing instances or examples of what you call the gradual evolution uh, whereby authoritarian states are crafting a more authoritarian enabling, if you will, in international law. And I think you cited to the increased level of activity on the UN Human Rights Council as kind of a, a classic and very obvious example of some of the consequences of that greater, if you will, integration activity from an authoritarian perspective. So where does this take you, this look backwards, and an appreciation of this trend, what is the recommended course, if any, that you have, say, for democratic states who seek to push back against this kind of gradual evolution of international law? Right. Well, in terms of where to go forward, an obvious thing is to engage more with the structures of international law and to be vocal uh, defenders of liberal and democratic values. We've seen uh, a real ab abstention uh, from that line of activity, which was traditionally a major focus of U.S. foreign policy, that's obviously disappeared in the last few years. And that means we're essentially ceding uh, these international fora to authoritarian regimes. The Human Rights Council you mentioned is a perfect example. The uh, United States withdrew from it, uh, saying it was a bunch of dictators. And it's true. Obviously, the Human Rights Council does have a plurality of different states among uh, its members, and um, that, you know, you sort of have two options. You can take your marbles and go home, but then you're certainly leaving the Human Rights Council to be um, a forum whereby authoritarians legitimate their own rule. And that's what I think we've seen. Last year, there was an effort to condemn China over its policies in Xinjiang, uh, the far west, where there's various repression of uh, the Muslim Uyghurs. And uh, after some initial debate over it, a massive majority of states voted with China to defend its human rights record, including many majority Muslim countries. Um, and 
you know, that's an example of how just seeding the terrain means that you're basically giving up on using international instruments to protect liberal democracy. And that, I think, is just a massive mistake. I'll mention one other thing, which is, um, you know, there was when this administration came in, obviously, there was a sort of sense that anything that uh, the Obama administration had done had to be reversed. And I think in, in retrospect, leaving the Trans-Pacific Partnership on the table, rejecting that, uh, is going to be looked back at as quite a big mistake. Uh, first of all, the trade regime that it was introducing, the trade and investment regime, was actually a very mild consolidation uh, of existing norms. So it wasn't asking actually very much more of the United States on the ground. But it very importantly did signal that we uh, were going to play a leadership role in helping states to band together and to, uh, to some degree, decouple the economies, which ultimately has been one of the goals of the Trump administration vis-a-vis China. So I just think there have been a lot of um, mistakes, I guess, by a strategy of blanket disengagement. Right, well, I, I certainly think that's right. And, and as you well know, Tom, the TPP was originally designed specifically as a trade partnership between the U.S., other Western democracies, and some of China's mostly democratic-leaning neighbors, and that was by design to provide some kind of counterweight in that region. And of course, with the pullout, uh, it got waylaid to some extent, although we did see other states stepping into the, to the gap. But I guess the, one, the question that comes to mind um, in terms of the seeding of the international space and and something that is a real difficulty for democratic states from, from uh, kind of realizing, as you say, the potential of coming together, being more vocal, engaging, and not seeding the international space, is that a lot of that has to do with the domestic politics and what the domestic politics can map out. Um, for instance, in the perfect example of the United States is the Trump administration has deliberately chosen to take a different path from the Obama administration and is not, uh, at least in some of these instances, interested in U.S. leadership on international issues. And so a lot of the, the solution that, that you suggest in terms of greater international leadership may prove impossible because of the domestic politics of a particular actor, and the U.S. is obviously just one example. And so what, is, what factors do you think we need to look at or what can we say to democratic states who do want to push back in terms of how to approach that fundamental tension between the domestic on the one hand and the ability to internet and the ability to engage internationally on the other. Right. And I think it is worth pointing out that the United States is not alone, as you suggest. In many countries we've seen a rise of a sort of populist backlash against international institutions the sort of attitude of, well, what have they done for us lately and, and what do we get out of this? And, you know, obviously the benefits that we get from international cooperation are very diffuse and sometimes hard to identify. And yet if you view um, the prospects of an authoritarian dominated century and you take that seriously, well, then uh, the need to cooperate with other democracies, I think would be in the interest of every uh, every Democrat, let's put it that way, every every country in which you are trying to reflect the views of the underlying population through maintenance of democratic structures and constitutional structures. 
Um, unfortunately, though, we, you know, that's one of the interesting things about our era as well. We have sort of very hard authoritarian regimes. We have, you know, consistent established democracies. And then we have a whole bunch of countries in the middle. And um, that's the category which is growing quite a bit. And we see that sometimes they're, you know, on the knife's edge. Um, and events can kind of push them one way or the other. Um, and if I might, I might just bring up the response to the COVID-19 virus uh, as an example. So one of the things we see is, um, you know, many countries obviously are having to invoke emergency provisions, either in their constitutions or their legislation, in order to respond to the virus. And, you know, on paper, that means that a lot of countries were seeing you know, potential for limitation of rights, derogation from human rights, even abuse of human rights, um, and um, certainly much great restrictions on populations. And if you look at the formal rules, you know, they might look the same in uh, Cambodia and Hungary and, you know, in the state of Illinois, where I'm, I'm uh, speaking from. You know, governors have quite a bit of power under our emergency statutes. Uh, what makes the difference, of course, is how countries are using this power. And what I'm concerned about is that you see some countries that are exploiting the opportunity, if you will, uh, in a pretextual way to crack down um, specifically on political opponents. So we've seen that in Hungary, where the government has used the coronavirus to essentially cede all power to Viktor Orban, the prime minister, uh, now can set aside any legislation he wants um, and, um, you know, is not very well constrained by the constitutional court whose members he's all appointed. So that's a country where we've seen it tip, if you will. Um, Cambodia is another one where the coronavirus legislation uh, was preventing the spread of fake news, and most of the people who've been arrested for that um, have been the political opposition. So that kind of, you know, this is a moment where you see uh, politi various political systems being um, sort of given an opportunity to go one way or the other. And the fact that we haven't been sort of pushing democracy, emphasizing its values, emphasizing its importance, monitoring, speaking up against backlashes means that at the margin, it's a lot easier to slip into authoritarianism. And I really do worry about that. Now, and understood. And unfortunately, uh, history has many examples of crisis and the fact that authoritarian leaning countries in the midst of crises or states of emergency often use uh, that political context as justification for empowering the authoritarian government, uh, you know, sometimes uh, on a temporary basis, but in practice, those changes are there to stay. So unfortunately, I certainly agree that history would support that worry and that concern. And so here we are in COVID-19, we've looked backwards, we look forward, so let's look at where we are. So here we have it, obviously, an international crisis, you know, the scope of which I haven't seen in my lifetime. And it sounds to me like you think that it, it could be and very well has proven in the countries you've mentioned as a catalyst for swing towards authoritarianism. And so I guess the, the question is, is what factors do you think would make that swing more or less likely sitting here today as we watch this unfold in country after country before us? What, what are the factors that you think are make it more right for authoritarianism to take hold and what are would make it less? Difficult question, I know. 
Yes, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure that international law has much to say about it. As you know, there have, there's not really a forum to litigate uh, even disputes over reporting to the World Health Organization or anything like that. Uh, we've seen some spurious lawsuits filed against China in various American jurisdictions. I don't think that's the way to uh, resolve things. And um, it sort of illustrates that the key variables are actually at the national level. They're at the level of national constitutional democracy. One of the things that we see when we look at COVID response around the world is that, of course, there's a natural tendency to, in a crisis, in an emergency, to give power to executives. That's kind of inherent in the nature of emergencies. You've got to do that. Uh, but then the question, the key variables are, you know, is there monitoring by uh, other national institutions? Are the courts open and playing an independent role? And here is where I think regional, maybe not global, but regional human rights bodies can play an important monitoring role. Uh, you have the Council of Europe obviously gets derogations from states if they want to suspend certain rights for the period of the, of the crisis. Um, you know, regional courts, I suppose, could be called on to adjudicate things. Um, so there may be a role for international law there, but it turns out, I think, that the key variables are actually national. And that's where sort of a global alliance or at least global recognition that constitutional democracy is important in other countries around the world would be uh, quite welcome um, and hopefully might be reinforced. And, and here I have to say, I'm actually pretty optimistic, um, despite the title of my article and despite, um, you know, trends the way they've been going. It is also the case that we're seeing resistance to certain authoritarian norms uh, in these countries at the margin. We see countries which look like they were kind of, you know, corrupt authoritarian countries, and then they do have, they do switch. Um, Armenia, uh, Ethiopia looked like it was going to be a uh, sort of authoritarian developmental state and has now, um, you know, reversed course and has you know, kind of struggling, but at least it's kind of headed in the right direction. So I'm not uh, totally pessimistic, let me put it that way. That's good. <laughs> Much appreciated and certainly a good note to end on. I will say that I really appreciated um, this particular aspect of your article and that the themes that you've drawn out about what history teaches us about democracies, what makes them strong, what makes them vulnerable to authoritarian regimes, and linking that up to what some people think is a different conversation about international law and international legal order and the liberal legal order order when in fact they're very much connected concepts, as you cause it, and they should be treated as connected concepts in the sense that even domestically, when we talk about our strong democratic roots and traditions, that should translate in the public discourse into these themes, these recurring themes about the international legal order and what kind of government we would want that legal order to support. So I very much appreciated um, your thinking and your article and would definitely highly recommend it for, for our listeners to, to seek out and, and take a good read. But I wanted to thank you for, for joining. I uh, really appreciate it. And for those of you out there listening, stay safe, be well, and please do join the American Society of International Law at ASL.org. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Catherine.